Hi, I'm Dan Paletta. Welcome to The Landscape, a Crane's Cleveland podcast. We're glad you could join us. Last year provided us with a stark reminder, in particular with the death of George Floyd, that racial disparities continue to exist in this country, and they seem to exist in many walks of life, including the world of philanthropy. To address that issue, last September, the Cleveland Foundation started what it called the Cleveland Black Futures Fund to invest and strengthen Black-led and Black-serving social change organizations. At the end of last month, the foundation announced that the Cleveland Black Futures Fund had awarded nearly $2 million to 49 Black-led and Black-serving nonprofit organizations in this first round of grant-making. Here to talk about what the fund does is the Cleveland Foundation's Program Director for Arts and Culture and Racial Equity Initiatives, Courtney Barton, as well as our own Lydia Coutre. Lydia covers both healthcare and nonprofits here in Northeast Ohio for Cranes Cleveland. Welcome to you both. Glad you could join me today. Thank you. Courtney, before we talk about the foundation and the Black Futures Fund itself, let's talk about the notion of why sometimes some of these organizations haven't been supported. Is it partially the case that often in philanthropy that many of these boards over the years have been dominated by people who were also on a board of a traditional organization that tended to receive the funding? So there's been less focus to give funding in other places? Um, well, uh, I think there are a couple of, of answers to that question. Um, it does start with you know, who is on your board and whether or not they have access or understanding of philanthropic systems. Um, by and large, uh, Black-led organizations tend to be smaller, more grassroots organizations. Their board members are often among friends and family who don't necessarily have um, direct relationships or understanding of philanthropic and fundraising systems. I would say it's less so um, that uh, boards of philanthropies necessarily direct the grants that they make to organizations that they have a relationship with. I mean, there are rules about conflict of interest that, you know, we do stick to. But I do think um, because the grants that make get the most news, the most coverage, tend to be large grants to larger organizations that tend to be white-led because we do have so many smaller nonprofits and communities of color in general and Black communities specifically um, that don't know how to go about fundraising, don't know how to go about positioning themselves, um, tend to understand, based on some of this messaging that's either explicit or implicit, that philanthropy isn't for them, at least philanthropy um, from large institutional funders like the Cleveland Foundation. And so we've spent the last couple of years trying to get outside of our typical echo chamber. Um, you know, there are organizations of all stripes and sizes that are doing great work and some that we have relationships with, that we've had relationships with for a long time. But part of the Cleveland Black Futures Fund was to say, we also mean you. That is the organizations that we haven't had relationships with before. How did the Futures Fund come together? What was the decision-making process to make it happen? Well, you know, I would say that although it was announced in September, we started working on the plans for it in June, in June of 2020, as protests erupted around the country, but also um, in Cleveland as well. Um, it really became a moment of us sitting down as a staff um, and thinking about how we as a community foundation should be responding to the evident demand in the street that people wanted to see greater equity, that people were tired of the way that things had been going. Um, COVID-19 happened and, you know, I think people thought that it would be an equal opportunity pandemic. It was not. We saw that perhaps there was, you know, an equal opportunity to catch COVID-19, maybe, but also that um, the devastating effects of it were incredibly inequitable, that 
if you were black or a person of color, you were more likely to have a much more negative outcome, be hospitalized or die of COVID-19, and people were tired. Um, and so as a foundation, if our goal, if our mission is to improve life for um, our community members, we have to admit that black community members' life chances were actually declining in outcomes for a number of years. And it was time to really, you know, plant our flag on we are going to engage in more equitable grant making practices. Um, and we spent a lot of weeks uh, researching and planning over the summer of 2020 to figure out a way to start. And the Cleveland Foundation's uh, Black Futures Fund, this is a start for a more equitable grant making process that takes into account racial disparities. When you made it known that these funds would be made available and that people could apply for them, what kind of interest did you have in people saying, I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity? There was so much interest right away. Um, we tried to manage some of the interest because we were still, you know, uh, to use a cliche, building the plane as we were flying it. Um, but in a matter of just a couple of weeks, um, I held office hours where people could sign up for meetings to just talk about the fund. Between 60 and 70 organizations in that short period of time, 223 unique applications for this fund. Um, more interest than we could possibly um, have predicted and something like 40% of applicants were first time applicants to the Cleveland Foundation, which is truly astounding um, given the length of existence of the Cleveland Foundation, the number of relationships that we have, it really uh, helped us to understand that we were barely scratching the surface and understanding the number of organizations, the depth and magnitude of the nonprofit and philanthropic sector in the black community in Cleveland. Lydia, overall, how did you find fundraising over this past year? How did funders and donors respond to the needs of Clevelanders over this period, especially during the pandemic? I think we, I mean, we saw the funding community and, and foundations and philanthropy really come together in an unprecedented way. I think the foundations in Northeast Ohio have been working together more and more in recent years. We've seen mm -hmm. that through different partnerships. It's been growing um, and that really set the stage for what was done in 2020 in response to the pandemic. The um, the, the obvious example is the Greater Cleveland COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund that awarded millions and millions of dollars to nonprofits across the region um, th throughout the year. It's still making those grants um, throughout this year. I believe that's still, Courtney, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that's still through the end of October is the plan right now for phase two. Um, and that that collaboration, I think, really spoke to um, an, an interest in donors in, 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 in wanting to respond to this pandemic and also in, in the foundation's ability to work together um, across all their partnerships that they've been developing to be able to respond quickly. But alongside that generosity, there was also this major demand for social justice work, too, in addition to raising millions and millions of dollars for COVID-19, there was still, you know, as the Cleveland Black Futures Fund grew, it, it's, it's amassed more than $4.3 million since it, since it was, it was created. So there's still this um, interest in funding both. And I think that speaks to um, both the foundations and the, the fund's ability to draw in money and also donors and um, different organizations willingness to put forth those dollars um, for both of these efforts at the same time. Um, and I, th I think it'll be interesting to see what that looks like going forward um, and how that interest is sustained, especially with the Black Futures Fund and all these commitments that have been made in the past year to fund 
um, diversity, equity, and inclusion to fund um, Black and minority-led and serving organizations. And obviously, the the Black Futures Fund is a very um, tangible and solid way to do that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to kind of see how that what that looks like going forward across foundations, across donors. Courtney, you mentioned that many of the people who applied for these funds, this was the first time they'd reached out to the foundation. What did you learn about this process, about how the foundation's been reaching Black-led and Black-serving nonprofits and ways to improve on it? Basically, I think the long story short is uh, we have fundamentally changed the way that we will be engaging with communities, with finding organizations. Um that we got thousands and thousands of impressions um, of a town hall that we did in partnership um, with Radio One, that our videos that we made to walk people through the application portal, the process, uh, the webinars that we did, the sort of detailed request for proposals that we did with more links and resources, the office hours that we did um, to give people an opportunity to ask questions on a one-on-one basis leading up to the application deadline. Those were things that I think people really appreciated. Um, Previously, and, and we kind of talked about this before, you kind of had to know how the system worked. You kind of had to know that you needed to register um, for uh, credentials and log in, and you needed to know what it meant when we asked for an application narrative. Um, And so we created an application form that just asked the questions directly, the information that we needed to know. Where are you working? What is it that you are doing? What are you seeking funds for? Rather than the sort of big, empty, intimidating box that just asked for um, a narrative. Um, And people reported anecdotally at least, that they felt seen and appreciated and understood um, in a way that they hadn't felt before in the messaging and communication from the Cleveland Foundation. Um, So I believe that those things are are lessons that we will carry forward um, in a different way than we have previously. Um, Really getting outside of the way that we have been communicating with people, which it has been working, for the audiences that it has worked for. Um, But now we're trying to expand our messaging and reach out to new audiences as well. Courtney, I'm wondering if you could also speak to how you're seeing not just the Cleveland Foundation, but maybe other foundations as well, rethink some of the really traditional and sometimes rigid ways that you look at eligibility for a, for a grant or what you think of the traditional, you have to prove capacity, you have to prove these things to be eligible. And I know the Cleveland Foundation, You've, when we've spoken before, you've indicated you've already been rethinking that, but it's really about also messaging on that. Um, and do you think there are other foundations that really need to or are reexamining that in light of the past year? Yeah. You know, I would say that there are actually a lot in the last few years that have been rethinking these sorts of things um, with this just idea that the people that are most proximate to the problems are probably most proximate to the solutions. But when we look at that place that is close to the problem, we're going to see you know, uh, less stable finances. We're going to see a budget that is probably more aspirational than actual, right? We're going to see boards, um, as we talked about before, that are less networked. We're going to not see, you know, the sort of balance sheet that we would want to see. We might not see an audit, you know, the way that we would want to see for a larger institution. Um, And it becomes kind of a cycle in philanthropy that if you have to have these things already in place, but you, you can't get into the system, 
to get the resources that you need to get these things in place, um, it, it becomes a bit of a conundrum. And so there are more foundations, I think, locally and around the country in various issue areas that are beginning to think about ways in which um, they can work with, with communities to help position organizations to get into these these systems, these places um, where they can access resources to do those things. That's part of the reason why the Cleveland Black Futures Fund is targeted towards capacity specifically. So that, you know, if an organization needs the governance policies in place that will make them attractive for other types of funding, that will make them a more sustainable um, organization, um, they will be able to do the work that needs to be done. Um, and we see, by and large, um, with organizations that are led by people of color, they are less likely overall to receive capacity types of funding. They typically will receive more project-based funding, and that makes it hard um, to get those things in place that are those traditional markers of strong institutions. The Cleveland Black Futures Fund is about building infrastructure for organizations so that um, in the next few years, they will be positioned um, for greater access to more of the, the decision-making tables, the policy-making tables, um, to be able to make those changes that they have the visions and missions to make, but perhaps not the resources to achieve at the moment. I mentioned when we began our conversation that 2020 seemed to be a year that galvanized people as they seem to become even more aware of problems in the world of race. Why do you think this is? I'll start with you, Lydia. Why was the, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, why were these incidents the ones that seemed to galvanize people and get them to take action as opposed to many times in the past where this just didn't seem to happen as much? Yeah, this is a question I've asked a lot of people in the past few months in different conversations I've had, because I think um, obviously George Floyd was, the murder of George Floyd was an incredible tragedy that really got a lot of momentum. And I think there are some people asking why this time. And there's a lot of other factors that I've heard from different people that may have contributed to it. Everyone was was kind of at home, stuck to the news in a way that that wasn't the case for a lot of other, in a lot of other times. We were all connected virtually and maybe our attention was honed in in a way that it wasn't at other times, unfortunately. And I think that I, I'm, I'm hearing from different people that that may have contributed to kind of a, being a galvanizing um, factor to be a true inflection point rather than it's there for a couple of days and then it's gone. There's a new there's a new thing that people are distracted by. And also, I mean, that video was we, we've seen other videos in, in different cases, but that video was was truly harrowing. And I think. I think there were just so many factors. And also, because George Floyd wasn't the first case last year, it wasn't the first case that month. Um, and this is, it, it's so it's so traumatic and repetitive. And I think, I, I've, I've been asking that question of a lot of folks, and I, I'm, I'm sure Courtney can, can, have, can say more about this. But I mean, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the other cases last year, I think maybe our, our attention as a society was, was kind of calibrated in a different way that maybe allowed for that. Um, and what what we were really valuing at that time, uh, we, can, we you know I think you can you can examine what that means and what that says about about us as a society. But um, I do think that there was a lot of other factors that that went into this being the one. What do you think, Courtney? Does that sound accurate to you? It does, um, but I think I would also add just another dimension to it. I think you're exactly right, Lydia. But I would just add um, if I can put on my uh, my hat as a black woman um, and not just as um, 
you know, uh, an employee of the Cleveland Foundation. Um, but I think what we saw in the Black community specifically was the straw that broke the camel's back, to use another cliche, um, because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And we didn't really have a great understanding of how COVID-19 was being transmitted. The messaging was so new. There was so much fear as disproportionately Black people had to continue to go to these jobs that are now, you know, essential jobs, but are still not paid enough, you know, without health benefits, without proper PPE, all of these things by and large disproportionately affecting communities of color. And then on top of that, on top of that, contagion that nobody could really um, fully describe or explain. There was also the end and, and we're not safe with police and we're not safe in the street. And there is a disease that is going out there. And it really became a moment of nothing else could be born. Um, And I think that because of the fear that, um, you know, engulfed everybody of, of every race and ethnicity in this country, that fear engendered a different level of empathy, I think, to that video, right? To seeing that because everybody felt afraid in a very different sort of way that maybe other people don't walk around feeling on a regular basis. And because of that empathy, um, we saw, you know, a movement that the New York Times called what the largest movement in U.S. history, that it was many times larger than, you know, the civil rights movement. Um, We saw and has been documented that it was a movement that was um, more interracial than any other movement for justice that we have seen in the U.S., at least in recent years. And I think it's because that sense of fear was something that a lot of people shared and people were able to project and empathize in a way that perhaps they weren't used to because of that fear. So I don't know that I think um, that had that happened at a different year, you know, if it hadn't been COVID-19, if if we hadn't seen that video, that things would have happened quite as they did. But it really did, to your point, Lydia, become a different sort of inflection point because of all of those circumstances. Courtney, finally, what do you hope the Black Futures Fund means for nonprofit minority organizations here in Northeast Ohio? I hope that people understand that this is just the beginning, um, that we mean it when we say that we are in it for the long haul, um, that people will begin to understand that even outside of the Cleveland Black Futures Fund, we are interested in the work that is being done that perhaps we have not had relationships with before. Um, I hope um, that this fund continues. Um, I have no ceiling on my ambitions for what this fund can achieve. Um, we're going to be making more grants in the fall and in subsequent years as well. And we hope that, you know, in, in a few years time, we begin to really see how focusing on building strong relationships and strong infrastructure for black led organizations will reap benefits in, you know, in changing some of the circumstances that the black community, but by extension, the entire Cleveland community faces. Courtney Barton is the Cleveland Foundation's Program Director for Arts and Culture and Racial Equity Initiatives. Lydia Coutre writes about health care and nonprofit for Crane's Cleveland Business. Thank you both for joining me for a fascinating discussion. Let's hope this continues to move forward and helps a lot of people who can use the help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well as joining us for the Landscape of Crane's Cleveland Podcast. On behalf of our producer, Cody Smith, I'm Dan Paletta. We'll talk again soon.